The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm your host, Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Becky Blaylock, former senior executive of Southern, where she worked for 33 years. And under her leadership, the Southern Company delivered over a billion dollars in new technology initiatives and was recognized as one of the 100 most innovative companies by CIO Magazine. Uh, Becky's going to be talking to us about her new book this morning, and her book is uh, called Dare, Straight Talk on Confidence, Courage, and Career for Women in Change. And in her book, Blaylock, Becky Blaylock, does just this. She teaches us confidence. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Becky. Great. It's good to be with you, Catherine. All right. So women and confidence, courage, career, um, I guess, you know, asking you why you wrote this book maybe is not really the question to ask because you've had this experience. You've been in business for 33 years. You retired in October. Um, you were successful. You ran this company. As I said, I want to keep repeating it, over a billion dollars in new technology initiatives. But most women, unfortunately, if you look at the statistics, are not doing that today, that we're still kind of at the bottom of the heap when it comes to the, being on the top of the corporate ladder. Um, is that a result yeah. of a lack of confidence? Uh, confidence is a major driver in the reason that women have not progressed further than they have. You know, I could understand the numbers looking like they do today back in the 70s when I came out of college because you didn't have a lot of women majoring in business in those days. Women went to college to be a nurse or to be a teacher or, let's face it, to find a husband. And there's nothing wrong with any of those professions, but women also can excel in business. And today, the business schools are predominantly women. 60% of the people in business school today are females. And there are more women in professional jobs than men. There have been more women in professional jobs than men since the year 2002. Yet despite that, there is a very leaky pipeline in corporate America. And the higher up the ladder you go, the fewer women you see. There are uh, about a third of the people in middle management today are women. But then when you get to the VP level, the numbers drop down into the teens. And then when you look at CEOs, only 4% of CEOs in corporate America are women. And this is an issue that I would have thought we would be further along at this stage in time. But with this next generation that's coming out, we've got a great opportunity to close that gap and get more women into these senior jobs. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write my book. I wanted to share some of the lessons I learned coming up the ladder and hopefully inspire and give some courage to other women if this is what they want to help them pursue that path. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I three. think what you just say, Becky, if that's what they want, you know, we're making the assumption if they're going right. to spend the time and money to get their MBAs and be in business school and then apply for jobs in the in these big corporations that they do want to get to the top. And so you started at the bottom, as I understand it, and worked your yes, way to the I very top. at the very bottom. I worked my way through undergraduate school. I worked three jobs and went to school full-time, full started at the very bottom, and went back to graduate school at night once I was already working for my company. So I've, I've literally had to learn a lot of lessons coming up that ladder. But I hope that I can give hope to somebody that you don't necessarily have to graduate from an Ivy League school. You don't necessarily have to have mentorship when you walk in the door. And that you can go to the C-suite. There are things that you have to have to do if you want to get there. you got to work hard. you got to make some sacrifice. But it is achievable. And that's why really the first chapter of my book is all about dare to begin within and understand what it is that you want. Because going to the C-suite is not for all women and it's not for all men. But if you want it, there is no reason why you can't achieve it. Uh, if you put in place a plan for making sure that you um, get the kinds of experiences that you need, to help qualify you to move up the corporate ladder. So the, the first message is, is there to begin within. The second message is be willing to take those risks to get out of your comfort zone and be willing to fail because those are the experiences that teach you how to perform at the next level. What but Becky, do you, you think these are the reasons why women haven't been able to do that? It's because they haven't done that? They haven't looked within and then gone, say, to the second, second step, uh, dare to take a well, risk? Think, or are I there think, external think, factors that, have effect, that also affect, even if they want to do that, for some reason they can't do that? I think, I think corporate America has been very reluctant to give those opportunities to women. But in the rare chance that they do come along, and I see this happen all the time. In fact, I saw it happen with a young woman just last week that when an opportunity is put in front of many, some women, they'll say, well, I'm not ready for that. I'm not qualified. A man will never, most of the time, never shy away from an opportunity that's placed in front of them. But a lot of times, women will say, well, I need to check a few more boxes before I'm going to be ready to go to that move. Well, you can't afford to do that. If you're given those opportunities to go do something that grows your skill set, you should not shy away from, from leaping out there and, and making it happen. Because so why do we do you, that? Why, why do we do that? Because, I mean, you're pretty adamant about the fact that no man, no man maybe an exception, right. would ever say no to, to that kind of an opportunity, yet almost yeah. all women would say no because they have to, you know, it isn't perfect, they have to do yeah. this. Yeah. Not, we don't, why do we do that? Yeah, we, we don't have the same social safety net that men have inside corporations. If you look at who's in those senior jobs, it's predominantly men. And, you know, a lot of those men are friends with other men in the organization and aren't necessarily doing as aggressive a job as they need to at looking at the female talent in their organization. Women get excluded from a lot of the um, informal networking that takes on, that that takes shape inside corporate America. And because of that, we're absent from discussions that tell us what's really happening in the company and that are important in helping us be successful in our jobs. And also, uh, because, you know, you're not a part of that network, men are sometimes hesitant to take some of those high-risk, high-profile positions and give them to women. Uh, one of the things that I, I coach a lot of men on, because men have, have uh, approached me about, well, what can I do to be more supportive of women in my organization? I said, well, first of all, understand that if, uh, if, if women in your organization are the minority, 
they're going to feel very reluctant to speak up unless you create an environment that really embraces it when they do speak up. And the other thing is that if you have men and you're playing golf with them or you're taking them to lunch, you need to figure out a way to give the woman equal face time. Now, that may be that you don't take her to lunch, but you ask her to work on a special project with you. Or if you're giving a speech, you ask her to come and hear you give that speech, or maybe even ask her to give the speech for you. But the important thing is making sure that the women on your team get equal face time. And just because they're not speaking up doesn't mean there's not a lot going on. Sometimes so then the payoff to, to these guys when you're talking to them and you're coaching and you're mentoring the guys is you're losing a lot of talent. There's a lot of talent out there that you're excluding simply because you have to go about it in a different way if you want them to to share that talent and then work themselves up the corporate ladder. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, Catherine. Absolutely. You know, if you look at the United States, the women who have come into the workforce since the 1970s have added 25% to the gross domestic product of this country. So if women were staying at home and not coming to work, our country would not be faring as well as it is today. And if we could get just a few more women in this country who are going to the trouble of getting a college education to come and stay and feel valued and appreciated and contribute to corporate America, there's a study by McKinsey that says we could increase the gross domestic product of our country by 3 to 4%. So who, who is not for that <laughs> and making sure that, uh, you know, we're spending all this money uh, educating women and then, then if they come to the workforce and they don't feel valued and appreciated and they, they go home and they quit – then it's really our, our economy that ends up suffering as a result of that. Yeah, in your book you say everyone needs a confidence boost, and I think that's really true. I mean, you have to get that within the corporates or wherever you are, whatever company you're working Absolutely. in, and women are Men not getting that confidence suffer. boost. What? Absolutely. Men and women both suffer with uh, self-confidence issues, and I feel so strongly about this that on my website I have a confidence quiz where you can go and take that quiz, and it will tell you uh, – are you confident enough or is this something you need to do work on? And then I have a confidence checklist of things that you can do to help boost your confidence. And one of the most important things is surround yourself with a bunch of very positive people and eliminate negative people from your network because bad attitudes are very contagious and so are good ones. You know, if you want to be a good tennis player, what do you do? You go play tennis with somebody that's better than you are. And if you want to be successful in the corporate world and really grow your confidence, you've got to be willing to hang out with people who are uh, maybe more positive and more progressive in the way they think about things. I'll tell people right, give us an example. Give us an example because you have examples in your book. Obviously, uh, there are lessons from, in, in your book from top women business leaders, and you could take one mm-hmm. of those. But give us a lesson, an example of, of that. You have to hang out with people who support you, who you feel confident to be with. But maybe there are very few, let's say, in certain corporations. How do you pick them out? What do you specifically do? Give us an example. Well, you know, I, I, take, I take the company that I grew up in. I was the first woman to hold many of the positions in my company for the first time, and I was the most senior woman. So there was nobody higher than me to reach out and mentor me. But you know what? There were women who did what I did in other companies. And I made it a point of having somebody introduce me to those women so that I could uh, get them to coach me and, uh, and mentor me. And I think that sometimes women are very reluctant to ask for help. But yet, most people are more than willing to help us if we ask. And if you ask them and they help you, then they have something invested in helping you be successful. 
Well, see, so I'd like to interject, Becky, I'd like to interject because I really think that it depends on the circumstances. I think women have wonderful skills in terms of asking for help. Women who are at home, let's say stay-at-home mm-hmm. mothers, for instance, are very good mm-hmm. at calling their girlfriends or their mother or their aunt for help about how to take care of the baby or how to take care of the household mm-hmm. or talking to their neighbor. So because they feel comfortable in that environment, then, That's you right. know, fast forward, you put That's them in a very corporate America. They than asking people for help in a predominantly male environment. <laughs> Exactly. So I, I agree with you. I think women are not hesitant to ask when it's people that they feel uh, feel comfort, comfortable with. But if you're in an environment that's mostly male, uh, you may be a little more reluctant to reach out for help. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other people at professional associations uh, that now have mentoring as a big part of uh, what it is that they offer that are more than willing to help coach and, and mentor you. I also spend a lot of time talking to younger women that if you are reporting to a senior woman, be supportive of her. You know, if you see her doing something that you don't like, try to find a way to get that message to her and telling senior women, be open to the feedback you get from people because um, none of us wants to be the for walking around with no clothes on and, um, and feedback is such a gift in terms of helping you be successful. But in terms of surrounding yourself with uh, positive people, it's important to do that. But it's also important to have people that will be very candid with you about things and will coach you, will be your own personal board of directors. And it doesn't have to be people inside your own company. Uh, I find that, in fact, many times it's helpful if it's not people inside your own company because uh, they can give you an unobjective, uh, unobstructed view because they don't... Re- maybe really know all the personalities that you're dealing with and can give you a more objective view about a challenge that you may have. So you create your own support group and you can create that group not within the company but outside the company. It's it's sort of like, what would you say? It's like a business meeting or a luncheon or a dinner you would have, you know, every week or every month. Create really, you know, specific kinds of clubs to be able to give each other support and boost each other's confidence or give feedback. Absolutely. I had a group of women that we had, we had virtual mentoring where we did a conference call once a month. We would just call and check in with each other. We had very similar jobs. Uh, very highly technical jobs. We were in different parts of the country, so we set up a time, and uh, and I came to just relish that time to be able to speak with them. Uh, just to have somebody to vent with who lives in the same world that you live in. But the other thing is to keep your self-talk positive. You know, we have these constant conversations with ourselves. We speak at a, about 150 to 200 words a minute, but at the same time, we're thinking at about 1,300. And most of those conversations are negative. And you have to teach yourself to quit having those warnings and to think more positively yourself about what um, what it is that you can accomplish. And be grateful. You know, for, particularly in the U.S., we wake up every day and we compare ourselves to others and what we don't have instead of thinking about we live in the greatest country in the world and we have all this opportunity at our fingertips that we can take advantage of. And we're so much more advantageous than 7 billion people uh, in other parts of the world. But we don't wake up thinking that way. Uh, Forbes had an article recently, and it said that it was like the five habits of um, most highly successful people, uh, how they spend the first hour of each day. And just about every one of those people talked about the fact that they spent some time in that first hour of each day thinking about how grateful they were for the things they have. And that just starts your day with you in the right frame of mind about um, all the many great things that are already happening in your life and helps build your confidence. I tell people to focus on how you're dressed. You know, if you're not dressed appropriately uh, for a particular event, then you're not going to be your best. And you're not going to come across confident if you don't have 
simple things like good posture and if you're not making good eye contact and if, heaven forbid, you don't have a firm handshake. These are simple little things that can help you project a very confident attitude and will actually make you feel better about yourself as well. I wouldn't disagree with that. They compliment other people very generously. When you're looking for the best in other people and make it your uh, focus that every day you're going to go out and try to give other people a pat on the back, you begin to see the best in yourself. And taking care of ourselves. We are so busy uh, getting the work done and taking care of our children and our uh, work that we, the thing that, that takes a back seat is our own health. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time telling women, that's your number one job. You can delegate a lot of things. You can delegate child care. You can delegate getting somebody to take care of your house. If you're a great leader, you can delegate uh, work. But you cannot delegate to somebody else to take care of yourself. You've got to take responsibility for making sure you get enough sleep and you need to get enough exercise. And the research says that those people that exercise at least three times a week, number one, they earn 9% more and the research says that they have a 2% bigger hippocampus, which is the memory part of your brain. So there's lots of great reasons to make sure you stay focused on uh, taking care of yourself. Well, are you saying that women don't take care of themselves and are making the comparison as much as men do? That Because I was under, the, you know, I was, maybe it's a misconception that women take care of, maybe this is true then, everybody, they take care of their kids' health, they make sure that their husbands or their spouses or their partners get to the doctor, uh, but they themselves don't take care of their own health? I think women tend to put themselves at the bottom of the totem pole. And uh, and I've tried to to, uh, do my part to tell women that I think that we've all got to be taking care of ourselves a priority Uh, because that's the ball that tends to get dropped because we're so focused on taking care of other people. Women tend to be very nurturing of others, and they'll put themselves at the bottom of the list, and you just can't do that. You want to be confident and you want to feel and be the best you can be. You've got to be physically fit to do that. I want to ask you about this because you have one of the things that you talk about in the book is dare to fail and get back out there. Because nobody, especially in America, we do not like to talk about failure or even admit that we have failed at something. So how do you, in this corporate America and getting ahead, you dare to fail uh, and then you're able to get back out there and I I'm assuming be successful. So uh, let's talk about that. Well, first of all, we over we we don't accept or take risks because we overestimate the consequences of failure. Um, and I tell people too that sometimes we won't take risks because, um, you know, it, it's it's something that we have superimposed on uh, on ourselves and. Um, And that you just really cannot allow that to happen. Yeah. So in other words, if we're afraid to take a risk, obviously, we, it's because mm-hmm. we're afraid we're going to fail, but then we can't get ahead. Right. Yeah. I mean, are women... Well, that's why... Do we do that more than men? very important. That what? Because surrounding yourself with, you know, mentors who will coach you and uh, help you believe uh, that you can do something. And, and I tell people making those mistakes is important, but you don't have to make all the mistakes yourself. Learn from the mistakes of others. And um, the the thing about um, making a mistake is so many people won't accept responsibility for it. Whereas if they would just um, say these five words, please forgive me, I'm sorry, we could make so much controversy go away in corporate America. But most people, particularly men, uh, will not admit 
uh, that they've made a mistake. And I found that um, that if, but you shouldn't accept responsibility for something if it's truly not something you've been involved in. But if you're even responsible for uh, 10% of something that has failed, then you should be very aggressive in taking responsibility for it. Can you give us an because, example of that happened to you, let's say, because, I mean, you're the perfect example of someone, obviously, who became extremely successful in a man's world. Um, mm-hmm. What were the biggest mistakes you made that you were able to rectify, admit to, and then go ahead with and, get, and go on? Oh, I made, a, I made a huge mistake early in my career. I was responsible for some financial reports for the CFO and the CEO who were taking them to uh, New York to, uh, for a meeting with some people on Wall Street. And I had just assumed the leadership role. I was in charge of the reports. And I had a new person on board who was responsible for coming up with a lot of the content. And I assumed wrongly that that person was going to be as responsible about the accuracy of the numbers as I'd always been. I didn't go back and check his work. And, uh, you know, long story short, these financial reports had some errors in them that were discovered by the CEO and CFO when they were on the plane on the way to New York. They ended up not being able to give these reports out. And, of course, when they got back, I got the feedback back that the reports had errors in them. They couldn't be passed out. I had worked three 18-hour days trying to make sure these reports were just perfect. I was very focused on the way they looked as opposed to the accuracy. And they knew that I had worked very hard on it. And I went and apologized to both of them. I said, I am very sorry. I said, you know, I, I can't tell you how embarrassed I am that this happened, and I take full responsibility for it. Truth of the matter is, I could have thrown the person that worked with me under the bus because that person was the one responsible for the accuracy. But that person was reporting to me. So um, I assumed full responsibility for it. And because I, they knew how terrible I felt about it, um, I was allowed to fail. Now, not everybody's in a situation where you got people that understand and allow you to fail. But I will tell you that after that, I became known as somebody you did not want to put something in front of if it was not right because mm-hmm. I was going to go through it with a fine-tooth comb. I learned from that early mistake, and it actually made me so much more successful down the road because I became a fanatic about fact-checking <laughs> and making <laughs> sure things were accurate. I'll give you another uh, example like that. When I was the CIO, we were responsible for billing out internally for the services that my group provided. And in a regulated environment, if a business unit doesn't spend the money that they have within the calendar year, then they lose the ability to spend it the next year. So there's a lot of focus on trying to make sure that you're coming in on your budget, you know, actual target accurately. And one of the... Uh, individuals in, in this particular business unit gave bad information to my team, said that a piece of equipment was supposed to come in by a certain due date and was going to hit the budget. Well, their vendor didn't deliver the tool uh, in the right amount of time, and under regulatory proceedings, you couldn't book that cost. So they came in way under budget, which means they had a missed opportunity to spend some money. And word got back to me that the VP was furious with my team. So I called his office, and I scheduled a meeting with him. I first met with my team, and I told my team, I said, we're going to go in, and we're going to accept responsibility for this and say we're very sorry that this happened. We want to put a plan in place to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future. And my team was mad at me. They're like, well, it's not our fault. It was their fault. And I said, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. We all work for the same company. What is important is that we learn from this and put a plan in place so that this doesn't happen in the future. 
So I took my team in. He had his team in, and we uh, started the meeting off, and he just royally, you know, vented for about 10 minutes about how uh, disappointed he was that we had not come in on budget. We had, you know, all the standard stuff. And so after he finished spending, I said, you know, I said, we're very sorry that this happened, and we understand that, you know, it's a missed opportunity for you to spend some money, and we want to put together a plan to make sure that this doesn't happen again, and we want to work with you and make sure we work with your team to make sure that that doesn't happen. And he sat back in his chair, and he was flabbergasted, and he said, well, he said, uh, he says, I, he says, most of the time, y'all are so defensive about everything. He says, I can't believe you're accepting any responsibility for this. I said, anytime something like this happens, there's fault on both sides. And I, and I said, we just want to make sure it doesn't happen again. And then he said, well, you know, he, there probably was some fault on our side, too. We probably do need to improve the communications. And he became our biggest advocate. He had been somebody who had just been a real thorn in the side to us, and he... Uh, after that meeting was such an advocate for us because we were willing to go in and not point the finger back and say, some of this is our fault, too. We're on the same team. How can we fix this? So it's all about accepting responsibility. And also, though, as I'm hearing you talk and you're giving these two examples, I mean, you are a a problem solver. I mean, I just just kind of wrote that down. You have to be a problem solver. First, you accept the responsibility for your mistakes, but then you have to be able to solve the problem, right? You have to be clever. Right. Yeah. You want to make sure plan. you know you learn from things and that they don't happen again. So we only have a few minutes. What do we want to leave everybody with? I mean, you know, you mentioned well, just one thing is you mentioned your website, but you didn't say what the website was. So I want to what what is the website because you have a quiz. You talk about the website. BeckyBlaylock dot com. Okay, well that's easy. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> because I you know I want to take that confidence quiz on yeah, uh, yeah Becky Blaylock. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, and there are 28 other really remarkable women that I interviewed. And, uh, you know, it's probably the number one single piece of advice that I ask these women is if you had a young woman entering the workforce today and you wanted her to be successful, what single piece of advice would you have for her? And just about every one of these women talked about the, the, the need to take more risk. Uh, and the fact that, you know, before you lean in, you got to have some people to lean on and you got to have some roots in the ground. But once you get that, you really got to take the initiative because leadership is taken. It's not given. And too many times as women, we sit back and wait for somebody to come tell us what to do. And in today's corporate world, we need people who can take the initiative to see what needs to be done and that are leaders. And there's just not enough of that in the workplace today. But Becky, you said you know that, that can, half the half the MBA programs are are now women or fifty six fifty fifty sixty forty whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, are they teaching any of this particularly or specifically to women, or is it the assumption is you know you're men women you know you're getting your MBA you're all the same? I mean, do they is any of this incorporated to any of the coursework that they do in MBA programs or even undergraduate BA pro, uh, you know business programs? There are a few. Uh, gender leadership programs in the country. Universities that get it are teaching this. I'm spending a lot of time uh, myself with various different universities. I'm actually at George Mason University today uh, talking with some young women here. And I was brought in for this reason, to talk to women about leadership, about what it's like once you get into the corporate world. I was at uh, North Dakota State University two weeks ago and have been at many other universities across the country. So, um, I think there's more of a, an awareness now that you've got women who are going to be in these leadership roles. 
and that the best thing we can do is put more role models in front of them. In fact, McKenzie did a pretty uh, deep study to determine why were women not making more progress in the in achieving senior positions in corporate America. And the number one thing they derived was institutional barriers, which is culture. And they said one of the main ways to overcome that is to have more role models out, more women who have achieved senior-level positions talking about what it takes and uh, trying to coach and mentor that next generation. That's why the last chapter of my book is about reaching out and giving back. I think the early women who cracked through those glass ceilings were so busy just trying to survive at that senior level that they didn't spend a lot of time reaching back and bringing the next generation along. The future is all about uh, the most successful leaders are the ones who are collaborative and who are uh, taking the time to coach and mentor and bring the next generation along with them. Yeah, and I, I mean, and we can end on that, and I think you're absolutely right. And actually, you look at all groups that have been marginalized. I think that's kind of the process of the evolution of the groups, whether it's women or minorities or LBG. Right. Yeah, I mean, they start out, you kind of have to protect yourself and get out there, and then you can you know, help the next generation. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Great talking to you. Mention the book again, Dare, Straight Talk on Confidence, Courage, and Career for Women in Change. Dare is the name of the book, Becky Blaylock, and you can go to her website, beckyblaylock.com. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Catherine. Good day. Yep, we're going to take a short break, and coming up next is Mary Lou Wiseman, an award-winning journalist and author. Uh, her new book, uh, well, she, she's written several books, and her, we're going to be talking about her new book, My Middle-Aged Baby Book, a record of milestones, millstones, and gallstones. Uh, so don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Mary Lou Wiseman. Mary Lou is an award-winning journalist and author. Uh, her best-selling books include My Baby Boomer 
baby book, Traveling While Married, my middle-aged baby book, a record of milestones, millstones, and gallstones. And um, she's written, she writes for the New Republic, Newsweek, Glamour, Vogue, um, her a book that another award-winning book that she uh, wrote about her son Peter Wiseman, who died of muscular dystrophy in 1980, and that book was entitled "Intensive Care: A Family Love Story." So um, Mary Lou is very prolific. Uh, but I guess my question to you, Mary Lou, is you know this is you know saying compared to the book that you wrote about your son and the experience as a family and going through his. Uh, struggle with muscular dystrophy. Um, you, you write this kind of like lighthearted kind of book, you know, middle age, lighthearted, all the stuff that happens to us. My middle age baby book, a place to write down all the things you'll soon forget. How did you get, you know, why did you decide to do this? You know, because this is kind well, of very different. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am at the very least uh, an eclectic writer. Uh, I am interested in an awful lot of things, and I uh, am, frankly, the the flip side of tragedy is humor, and I can access easily both sides of that coin uh, because I think it's a natural to be to be like that. Uh, so uh, I am essentially a social satirist and a humorist to whom something dreadful happened, you know, in my life, and most especially in my son's life, and of course in my family's life. Uh, but even intensive care is, um, is, is the burden of that tragedy is lightened throughout the book by lots of fun and humor. It's just the way I live my life. It's just who I am. Yeah, I mean, well, I've written a, another book uh, that uh, called "Traveling While Married," which is a humorous book about how to get along with with your husband or your partner uh, when you're traveling, but it's really a, a satiric book about the differences between genders set in the environment of travel. Well, for someone who travels all the time with her partner, boyfriend of many, many years, I need to read that book, too. You, you I haven't do, read if, yeah. unless, unless you want his wet towel on your side of the bed. <laughs> His wet towel is often hanging on the door. I mean, I, that's a whole other issue with men and wet. I have three sons, so I know where I see wet towels in lots of different places besides the yes. bathroom. <laughs> yes, the secret is to divide immediately to divide the hotel room in half. Yeah, well, my mother had good advice. She said it's not necessarily that you need a big hotel room or a suite. What you need is the room can be one size, but what you need is two bathrooms, and that oh, yeah. A lot, yeah, and that really solves a lot of the problem. Yes, and, 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 and it would be especially helpful if either you or your husband did not insist upon doing the daily crossword puzzle in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we thought we learned sharing in kindergarten, but some of us did not. No, some of us didn't, and I'm not a good sharer, actually, and I am much <laughs> faster in the bathroom than he. I, yeah, well, just the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, but let's I, get to my middle-aged baby that. book because I identify with so much of that, a place to write down all the things you soon forgot, middle-aged baby book. I love it. Um, and you talk about the things that, especially when you're just kind of creeping into middle age, you don't want to talk about, like it's really embarrassing, um, all the, the firsts. Um, so let's get into some of those because I think they're very funny. Well, you know, the... What what happened to me with this book 
was it really, uh, you know how people say to writers, how do you get your ideas? And you get them, I get mine as gifts. And they're usually gifts that are very uh, personal and intended for me. I was struggling with middle age. You know, I took a look in the mirror and I saw jowls, you know, the beginnings of jowls. And I saw belly. Uh, I was not wearing clothes at the time. (laughs) And I thought, wow, I'm turning into a baby. I, you know, with the big belly and the puffy little cheeks. And, and I got this idea that, um, that middle age had a, bore a strong resemblance to, uh, to babyhood. And, and, you know, and then after I got dressed, I realized I was, I had dressed myself in rompers, you know, which were really, uh, you know, a sweatsuit, which is a middle aged response to, or middle aged, um, uh, version of uh, of, of a romper, of yeah, baby exactly. rompers, and and then and the more I thought about it, the more it became true. And because my mother had kept a baby book for me, I got the idea of writing what is in effect um, a parody of a baby book and a satire of middle age. And whilst, while, you know, middle age is, is the beginnings of aging. That's when you begin to really get the idea that you are going to get older, which is something that we deny and resist yeah. for as long as right. possible. And I think it, but you know what, Mary Lou, it's not the beginning of aging. It's what you just said, I think. It's the beginning of when we start to recognize that we're aging. Because, you, you know, these jowls have been coming on for years and the wrinkles. And it's, it's that when you reach critical mass and you suddenly are you willing exactly. to accept it. Oh, my. Exactly. It, it didn't just happen. No, it's, it's been happening and we've been denying. But, you know, yeah. one day you walk past... Uh, a store window and you get an unexpected look at yourself where you haven't yet rearranged your face into its best possible uh, appearance and you say, oh my gosh. How about trying I, on bras It's trying like, on a bathing who suit? Is, yeah, it's like, who is that woman in the window? Yeah. And then you realize, oh my gosh, it's me. Ditto for bras. Can't yeah. believe, can't believe bras. And also, you know, anything that, you know, suddenly you, you find yourself buying a pair of blue jeans because, after all, you're young and wear blue jeans, except that they have an elastic waist. And so it goes. Uh, the well, it's worse suit. if the salesperson suggests that you buy one with an elastic waist and it's, are you talking to me, uh, you know, that yeah. this may be more comfortable and these may be a little too slim fitting, even though you may be thin, but it's, everything has been kind of repositioned. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so it's a coming to terms with a, a, a lot of things that are essentially bad news. However, the, the wonderful thing about humor is that the minute you can laugh about something like this, it, a, a lot of the angst of it all truly dissipates. And it also makes it possible to, um, to put up with it, to put up with it and even, dare I say, uh, to kind of get with it and enjoy yeah, I, it. 
I, I agree. And I think one of the things, I mean, social workers do this all the time when you're taught, when you're counseling somebody or somebody's in therapy with you, you know, let's just become aware of what the problem is and admit to it, and then we can do something about it. Uh, we can discuss it. It takes a lot of energy to hide all that stuff. And I think, as particularly women in middle age, we get caught in that trying to, you know, you're plucking out the chin hairs, as you say, and you're not going to, you don't want to tell anybody. It's humiliating. Or the first gray pubic hair or, you know, and it's a big secret. But if you say it, if you bring it up to your significant other or to your girlfriend or to whomever, and you get it, it, it kind of just all that energy that you, you know, that you use to hide things, uh, suddenly, like you say, it becomes humorous. It become, becomes something that's um, natural. And liberating. And liberating. Yeah. And, and uh, this, this book um, has, you know, this book, this book is just meant to be, uh, it's meant to be liberating through humor. I mean, it's even, I, I don't know if you noticed, but it even has a padded cover, like a baby book, uh-huh. <laughs> so that, you know, when you have periodontal problems, you can teeth on it, you can gnaw it a little bit, and it will hold up. I mean, the, it's, a, it's one big joke, from literally from cover to cover. Everything inside it makes fun of everything that we have to face. Did you feel good when you were writing the book or when you finished it? I mean, was it a feel-good book to write? Yes, really. That's, <laughs> a, that's such a smart question, Catherine. Because it's the only time I've sat at my computer and laughed out loud at myself because um, it, it's a real tell-all, you know, and it doesn't, I mean, it talks about, it talks about, you know, Everything is is keyed to baby behavior, so it talks about um, toilet training. There is toilet training involved in middle age. I yeah. mean, first rule: never drink anything liquid after six p.m. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there are other rules uh, that involve um, how middle aged people train themselves vis-a-vis bathroom activities. Uh, and in every other phase of life, uh, about about how to read the obituaries without feeling bad, you know, because that's one of the things that that uh, people, middle aged people, begin to do as they begin to allow for the possibility that they may not be immortal. Mary Lou, I read the obituaries because kind of with the opposite, though. I read them thinking. Oh, I got by another day. <laughs> like, oh, that's right. This feels good. This is that Schadenfreude, I guess you call it. Yeah, there's, yeah. There, there's that. It's like you're dead and I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> that goes a long way toward cheering you up. Yes, it does. But 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 the re- but the other thing that 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 I you know what I like to do in my humor is kind of push the envelope and see how far I can go with it. So in the particular, and then this book is full of charts and weight charts and so forth, but it's also full of little essays, short essays, humorous essays. And in, 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 a, in the one called I Can Read, that one's about uh, how to read the obituaries. And the way I push it is to say, you, you read an obituary to understand, to ascertain what that person did wrong in order to die. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
you know, if you, and, and you have to look for clues in the obituaries because, they, of course, they never tell you that. But if you read carefully and you find out, for instance, that somebody was a um, passionate birder, well, then it's easy to understand that that person died of Lyme tick disease and it was his fault that he died. And so we look for fault in everything. If the person came from uh, California, well, then clearly it was melanoma, too much time in the sun without using sunblock, their fault. Therefore, that opens up the possibility to you, the reader, that as long as you don't do anything wrong, you may not die. So it's even better than schadenfreude. Yeah, it's true. Immortality. Right. I was going to say it reaffirms your immortality uh, because you haven't yeah. done any of these things. That's true. I, I like uh, Yes, you're absolutely right. Totally, totally crazy. But I, I, I sometimes like to go crazy. Yeah. Well, because I, I think essentially the truth in all of us, and I mean, and that's why... There, I talk about this flip side between, you know, uh, between laughter and, and, and sorrow is that deep inside all of us for the longest of times, probably well into old age, we think we're going to get away with it because we so, we so, we are a society that so denies the reality of death. Well, we have gotten away with it, so we have been rewarded. So we've never not gotten away with it, so we think we're going to continue to get away with it. (laughs) Exactly, and that's what I like to play with. I like to play right out on the edge, right on the nerve. And you do. Um, Colonoscopy, I identified. Uh, I think that was a huge shock. I mean, I had to go back to, to make myself feel better Katie Couric, because she had a colonoscopy. She was 49 or whatever she was because her husband had died of it. So had to put myself <clears throat> more in that category, you know, yeah. that I, yeah. I'm, I'm still, I am young. Um, you know, all kinds of like rationalizations for why one would have to have a colonoscopy, which I did put off for many years. Um, exactly. And, of course, there's, because there are so many firsts in, in babyhood, uh, you know, which this book plays against, uh, you know, babyhood there, there's your first tooth, you know, your first haircut, um, your first steps, your first words. And in middle age, there are a number of firsts as well. And one of them is my first colonoscopy. And, uh, and there are plenty more. You know, my first gray pubic hair, as you mentioned, and uh, there's, uh, you know, the list, the list, unfortunately, goes on and on, uh, and it's pretty, um, it's, it's pretty lengthy. There are a lot of firsts of, of, of middle age. You know, and I, I was going to ask you, because what now, you've done middle age. Now, people are living to be 90s, even into their hundreds, people like 85 plus, for instance. And that's a Absolutely. whole other category that you're going to have yes. to write about. Well, a- I have already started to do that. I have actually started to do that. And uh was working on this morning, working on that project this morning. It's going to be a lot harder, as you can imagine, because we're getting nearer and nearer to the big D. D. And uh, 
it's it's going to be quite a little razor's edge uh, challenge for me. But I know, I know that there is plenty of fun to be had. Uh, and it's a real challenge for me to find it. Well, I'm excited you're writing this next book. I mean, I have uh, a mother who's in her 90s. I think one of the most difficult things about that, I mean, it starts to happen in middle age as well, but the series of losses, losses in every part of your life, whether it's people dying, loss of, you know, being able to physically do what you want to do or travel where you want to travel, and although even though in your head, and particularly if you're lucid, you... Um, you know, you feel like you want to do it, but you can't. I mean, your yeah. body really holds you back, and it's not, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, a, a lost tooth or a, you know, chin hair, but it's more than that. So it is, I would imagine, it's going to be a huge challenge to make that humorous. Yeah, it it, it is, and, and I have taken a, vi- it's taken me a very, very long time, like months, uh, to think about how to approach this uh, in such a way that it doesn't, uh, depressed but amuses because you're absolutely right uh, you know it is all about loss but it's also all about how we adjust to loss and we have a very I mean not everybody does it well a lot of people almost embrace old age as a uh, as a safe haven for just not trying anymore you know, and yeah. just as a comfortable place to kind of, um, you know, re- be unchallenged by life. But those people who have a record throughout their lives of of meeting challenge, of rising to occasions, will continue to do that in spite of their losses, yeah. because it's a it's a life wish. And, you know, at some point, of course, one must give up. But this is not, a, my book is not about giving up. My book is about seeing the humor in your situation. And, and seeing the possibilities, because if you're still here, you're still here. You haven't that's left right. yet. And, so, and also, I, I have an awful lot of fun, because I often have an awful lot of fun so far in dealing with the fact that older people... Uh, have a real, uh, I mean, they call, they call us grumpy, uh, but what we really understand is that all of the things that the next generation is doing is not necessarily, does not necessarily represent progress. We've lived long enough to understand that, um, uh, maybe you can't stop progress, but you can stop calling it progress or appreciating it as progress. Sometimes it's not. I, for instance, am not fond of the brand new toilets that flush themselves on my behalf. Yep. I don't like that prerogative <laughs> taken from me. Thank it's you very that. much. Exactly. Well, it takes and away the so power and the control good. that you have, and you walk in, you're sitting there thinking, is this really going to flush? Because there's people waiting in line, and they know that <laughs> I was in here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I don't like to having uh, my prerogatives taken from me by a technological world. And so a lot of, I mean, and I really don't, I really don't want to stand in the supermarket and look at all the mustards. You know, there was a time when French's mustard, Golden's mustard, and a little 
Dijon, you know, was enough of a choice for everyone. Yeah. Too many choices, uh, but how are we going to get rid of it? Too many choices. That? Yeah, way too many choices. And We're not necessarily but- going to get rid of it, but we can certainly make fun of it, and we can yes. certainly suggest that life was maybe better when there was only iceberg lettuce and when there was only prell and breck. Yep. You know? <laughs> Who needs it? And maybe we, in old age, know better than to write a condolence email you know, whatever happened to civility. So I have a nice, I'm writing a kind of cranky book, I think, a cranky funny book for old age. What about sex in old age? Are you going to talk about that? Oh, definitely. I'm going to go where everyone fears to tread. Yeah, yes. are grandma and grandpa still doing it? Yes, they are. They're doing it in nursing homes. Yes, they are. And they're having, and, and you know, and why not? I mean, uh, you don't have to be demented to have sex at 80. You can just have sex at 80. Yeah. I, I just, I, have, I had a girlfriend who, her parents, are, and she was in her 80s, I think, late 80s. Her mother uh, called her up and said, you know, I'm in the hospital. I broke my leg, I think she broke. And, and my, my girlfriend said, well, Ma, what happened to you? And she said, well, she wouldn't exactly tell her the story about <laughs> how she broke her leg. Finally, she found out she broke her leg because she was having sex with her husband and she fell, you know, and he <laughs> fell on top of her. And well, she wouldn't admit it. I mean, she was like eighty-five years old, and you know, when my girlfriend found out, she's thinking, "Well, good for you, Ma." But yeah. you know, her mother was terrified <laughs> to tell her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is. There's a really. We have a really bad rap. Uh, you know, old age people have a really bad rap, and um, I, I, my def, my book is is. Definitely going going to uh, going to expose that and and have some fun with it and make some fun of the people uh, who I've just written about in the middle age baby book. <laughs> you know the ones that are forever lighting you know perfumed candles right. and getting into yoga positions and and uh, you know so as soon as as soon as I am done. Promoting my middle-aged baby book, you're on to go on to make fun of that entire generation that has embraced eight eight quarts of no, is it eight quarts of water a day? No, it can't be. It must. I don't know, but it's like eight or ten or twelve glasses. I mean, I mean, who can do that? (laughs) I know, and who who has to do it, and why do it? And Um, by the way, does anybody really do it? And if they do. Aren't they spending their entire lives in the smallest room of their house? I mean, (laughs) what is that? You are very funny. We have to say goodbye. Oh, Um, my gosh. You're making me laugh, and I'm waiting for the next book. But my middle-aged baby book, everybody should be reading that right now, a place to write down all the things you soon forgot. We got a taste of it by just listening to you this morning, but it's very funny. Well, I'm happy to have talked with you, Catherine. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Mary Lou Wiseman, my middle-aged baby book. So go out and get it, and uh, we'll wait for the next stage. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great day, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesocks.com. 
Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.